On this slice of fresh bread, we continue in our discussion about premillennial eschatology and why we hold this view. Welcome to Fresh Bread, a podcast of Grace Bible Church Gainesville with Pastor Brandon and Pastor Keith. Well, welcome everybody. Welcome to Fresh Bread, where we're bringing the truth of God's Word to a starving world. And we were right in the middle of our pre-mill conversation last time. And here in Podcast 12, we're going to continue talking about the weaknesses and strengths of the pre-mill eschatology. And we just had finished talking about Revelation 20, where people bring that argument that that's the only place that you find the thousand-year reign mentioned in in all of Scripture. So it's a one part in a chapter where we get that eschatology, and we were, we were talking about that. We, we went into that, and now we're going to jump into the second argument against pre-mill, which people throw at those who hold a pre-mill eschatology, and that is it takes, it takes way too much of a literal interpretation on on the Bible. So what do you think of that, Pastor Brandon? Yeah, and I think, you know, that, that's, that's a good question. You know, what, how do you understand, you know, what to take literally and what not to? You know, I would argue that if you can take it literally, you know, as an example, if I'm looking at Revelation, um, you know, if I can take it, if I can take a passage to be literal, then I need to understand it literally. At the, at the same time, you know, so so if you look at, at say, Revelation, Revelation 12, uh, Revelation 12, you know, says, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon and hun- under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. And she was with child and cried out being in labor and in pain and g- to give birth. So, you know, the question is, who is this? You know, how do I understand something like this? Is is it a literal woman who's that's clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet? Um, you know, or is he speaking of something else? And I would have a hard time in that situation, you know, saying that, the, well, that's a literal thing in terms of, I think it's how John is describing what he is seeing, and he's describing it with figurative language, but I think it does actually stand for something, right? But I have to understand that I can't, if I take that too literal, if I'm too, too rigid, then I'm, gonna, I'm probably going to go a, diff, a bad direction. And so, so I have to go, okay, well, what is he really seeing here? You know, I'll give you another another example. In, in Ezekiel one, you know, he talks about Ezekiel talks about um, you know what he what he saw in Ezekiel one, which was a vision of the glory of God um, leaving Jerusalem. The flying saucer. The flying yeah, the flying saucer. The UFO. Yeah, and he and he describes this in in you know he says let me just just get over here to Ezekiel chapter one. Um, yeah, so if I look at, it says in verse 4, Then I look, and behold, a storm wind was coming from the north, and a great cloud of, with fire flashing forth continually, and a bright light around it, and in its midst something like the gleam of glowing metal in the midst of the fire. And within it there were figures with the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man, and each of them had four faces and four wings, and their legs were straight, and their feet were the were like a calf's hoof, and they sparkled like the gleam of burnished bronze. And under their wings, on their four sides, 
were hands of a man as for the face for the faces and wings of the four of them their wings touched one another their faces did not turn as they went and each went straight forward he goes on he keeps going and describing this that he saw now i actually i mean i think he actually saw something that he was describing in language that he understood. I mean, he was giving a description of something. He didn't fully understand what he was seeing, but he was giving a description of it in figurative language. But he was actually describing something that he saw. He was describing it in the only way he knew how to describe it based on the language that he knew, like based on you know, his, his grasp of language and people's understanding of a language, he was able to describe this. And so, you know, but, you know, the question is, did he actually, you know, what were these flashes? What were all the, you know, the, the, these things were likenesses. I mean, obviously we're, we're talking about angelic beings here. I mean, I say obviously, but the point is, is that he's using figurative language to actually describe something real. And I can see that. So I'm taking it literal, literally in the sense that, it literally happened, and he saw something that he he really saw something that he's describing. It was a real thing, but he's using figurative language because he has no other way to describe it other than using figurative language. I mean, it would be like I mean, again, if I if I was describing a helicopter to someone who didn't understand what a helicopter was, I you know I would use language that describes a helicopter that is figurative, and so it would. To someone who knows what a helicopter is, they they would you know that would sound weird, but I wouldn't look at it and go, well, that can't he he you know he that's that he can't be that can't be something real because, you know, must stand for something else because he's describing no, I mean he's describing something very real and something that he actually can see in a, in, a, in a figurative way. And like you're saying that you can take it too far the other way because I've heard people say that's the first encounter of a UFO. Ezekiel saw the wheel, yes, something in the sky, but yes. no, it from God, not something from another planet. That's right. I would argue. I mean, I think it was the the glory of God yeah. leaving Jerusalem. And, yeah, and I think it's something that God that showed Ezekiel so he would understand what was happening. And and I think it's something that God needed. He revealed that to. He allowed Ezekiel to see that for a purpose. Um, and so I would, I would argue that's not a, that's not a UFO. I mean, it's not in the sense of what we understand UFOs to be. I wouldn't take it that way, but I would say that he actually saw something very real. So I'm arguing now, arguing back toward the you know, revelation. And we have to remember that John is being given visions. He's actually seeing things. And it's interesting that, you know, when you look at, I mean, as an example, you go to revelation five, and and he describes the scene a scene in heaven in Revelation five, mm, yeah. and and it actually I mean it it it's not figurative language in the sense of we you know we can it's figurative language in the sense of the, the throne and what the throne looks like and and that sort of thing. But then it's not figurative language in the sense of I can see it happening. I can see the angels. You know it says you know verse eleven. Then I looked. And I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them would, was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. 
I would argue that that what's happening here and what John is seeing is actually what Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 7 when when the Son of Man, one like a Son of Man, came before the Ancient of Days. They're describing something that's actually happening here. And I can there's 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 a sense that I can understand it because I can I can visualize in one sense the myriads around the throne. I can I can visualize a throne. I can visualize that happening. Now, in terms of what it actually looks like, I think that's where John begins to turn or has to have use figurative language to, to describe what it looks like because it's something that's beyond human comprehension. We don't, I mean, words can't fully describe what John was seeing. I mean, I, again, that, did, that even reminds me of 2 Corinthians where Paul says, you know, I spoke, speak of one, you know, that was pulled up into the, into the heavens and third heaven and, 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 you know, saw things that, that, you know, it, it, I mean, you, he couldn't even describe what he saw, you know? And so, cause language doesn't even support that, you know, in terms of, but we wouldn't understand it even if it, you know, obviously it can in the sense of God, it's not as if God is short of words, but, but I mean, in terms of what we can understand in our limited understanding, we can't understand all the things that they, that they saw. And so it, it has to be figurative in the sense of they're trying to give a description of something that's undescribable or indescribable. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, I can't even imagine how trying to describe something that amazing. Yes. I mean, I don't know if we can even appreciate it because we live in, a, in, a, in an era where we see these movies with all these incredible special effects. And so we see things, but imagine going back, man, just even to the Civil War days and trying to describe even going to an NBA game to somebody like sitting in a stadium right now with music blaring and a giant scoreboard. And I mean, just trying to explain that to somebody. So we're going through the weaknesses of pre-mill again. We looked at the revelation 20 support, the only one, uh, the literal interpretation is too rigid. And then another one that they do, they do throw at the pre-mill people is that Theologically, a thousand-year reign, a literal thousand-year reign by Christ is unnecessary because why does there need to be an earthly reign if everything was already taken care of before in 70 AD, all that stuff happened? And then from, from 70 AD on, that's been Christ reigning for a thousand years. So why does there even need to be a literal, you know, theologically, why does that have to happen? That's, what, that's well, a question. Well, I, I think we've answered that. Right. But, but I think, you know, going back to... I think it. I think in terms of Christ's reign, it shows. I think it shows, and it, it fulfills the Adamic reign, but it also fulfills the Davidic reign. You know where mm-hmm. you know they David. David failed. David. You know with David with his uh, sin with Bathsheba. You know that. You know that you could make an argument that God, that you know David's victories were because God. I mean obviously because God gave him victory, but that if David obeyed, you know, obviously David's a sin, sinful man, but if David had obeyed and not fallen with Bathsheba, that he would have conquered the world. And, and I think, I, you, I don't, I think that that's a, that's an argument that would be hard to refute that ultimately it was David's sin with Bathsheba and, and his, and his lack of leadership in his own family that, that showed that he was not the Messiah well, when Christ reigns on the Davidic throne, Christ is going to conquer the world. I mean, he's going to, that's, that's exactly what's going to happen. And so, and it's not as if, 
what we have to remember is when he goes, when we go into the millennial kingdom, I mean, the world will be destroyed. I mean, in term, it'll be the same earth, but it will be destroyed. It won't look like it does today. I mean, it's going to be a, it's going to be a, a, I think it's going to be a wasteland after the tribulation. And so, I mean, I think it's going to, I think cities are going to be flattened. I think it's going to be a, a wasteland. And I think God, Christ is going to, in a thousand years, is going to not only restore the world, but is going to restore it to a pristine state. And, and he's going to rule from Jerusalem. And ultimately, no one's going to be able to question his rule. And then Satan, he's going to do what Adam should have done. He's going to do what David should have done. And, and he's going to fulfill those things, and then he's going to do it, and then Satan's going to come in and try to try to deceive the nations, and he's and and Christ is going to do what Adam should have done, which is which is tell Satan to get lost. Ultimately, again, he's going to judge Satan. But the point is, is that that I do think that it's going to. I mean, I do think it makes sense from that point of view. How about this one? So we've, we're we going through the, the weaknesses. How about this one? I've heard this also. Uh, Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. John eighteen thirty six. So why would he need to reign on earth if his kingdom is not of this world? I think that's the whole point. I mean, if you think about it, when Christ says that, when Christ says that my kingdom is not of this world, he's saying that my kingdom is different than this kingdom. And that's the whole point: is that Satan, that that God's kingdom, the kingdom of Christ, is coming down, and and I think that I mean that 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 it's going, he's going to rule the world, and I think that that is ultimately the millennial kingdom fulfills that, and so and and it 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 shows the world, and it shows the demonic world, it shows the angelic, the the principles and the powers of the air, it I mean the principles and the powers. The authorities it it demonstrates to them that he is the ruler. He is the he is perfect man. I mean that's exactly what's going on is that that Christ became perfect man, and and he's going to do what Adam didn't do, and yes. So yeah, that's and I, I mean again again it's his kingdom isn't. I mean that is exactly the point. His kingdom isn't of this world, it, and and that it, it's different. And what's going to happen is, is that he's going to bring his kingdom to this world. Yeah. That's a good answer. So again, we're going through the weaknesses of the pre-mill. Revelation, the only support of the thousand-year reign, a literal interpretation is too rigid. Theologically, it's not necessary for Christ to set up his earthly kingdom because everything was accomplished in 70 AD and has been going on ever since. And also, Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, John eighteen thirty-six. Well, you ran Pastor Brandon just answered that. And the final argument I've heard this one many times, it is that pre-mill interpretation puts too much emphasis on Israel. It actually makes the church less than Israel because Israel comes back on the scene and the church is sort of a secondary thought in all this. How would you answer that? That uh, there's just too much providence placed on Israel. Yeah, Keith, I think that what's happening... I think what we have to do is back up and understand that God is using Israel for a specific purpose, and he's using the church for a specific purpose. And that ultimately, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, in Ephesians 2, he talks about 
if you if you go to verse chapter two verse eleven, Paul is talking to the to the Gentiles, and he says, therefore, I mean, remember, church the church at Ephesus was primarily a Gentile church. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. So, so the Gentiles are uncircumcision, meaning that they, you know, don't have the sign of being God's people, by the so-called circumcision. So, those who are are identified as Jewish, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Then it says, "Remember that you were at, at that time without Christ." alienated from the citizenship of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And so what we have is that before before the church, the way you became one of God's people was that you were circumcised and became an Israelite, you became Jewish, you, you were a proselyte. But that in the church, that's you know, that's not what's happening. You, you, you become one of God's people by being in Christ. And he says that in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace who made both one and broke down the dividing wall of, of the partition by abolishing in the flesh, the enmity, the law of commandments contained in ordinances so that in, in himself, in himself, he might, create the two into one new man making peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, having himself in himself put to death the enmity. Okay, so what what's going on here? Now, we're talking about the church. And in the church, we've seen this partition, this wall, dividing wall of partition being torn down. Now, what's he referring to? He's referring to the temple. The dividing wall of partition divides the the Gentiles from the Jews. It's this dividing wall. That dividing wall has been torn down. Again, we're talking about in the church. Now, what we have to recognize, though, is that Jews are still Jews, and Gentiles are still Gentiles, right? It's not as if the Gentiles became Jews, right? It's that they've, they've... the dividing wall has been torn down. They've been made into one new man, but there's still distinctions in the sense of there's still nations. Those nations, I mean, matter of fact, in Revelation 22, there's even in even in the new heavens and new earth, there's going to be nations. You know, there's going to be these nations. Well, why are these these nations? Well, the nations are God has allowed the na- I mean, the, the, the nations are going to to bring Him glory. So there's going to be people from all different walks of, of life. And so then you ask, okay, so then the question is, what is the role of Israel? Well, the role of Israel is, I think, I think to be priests. That, that they're, they're, they're there to be they're, they're priests. And so in the millennial, millennial kingdom, I think that what's going to happen is, is that, that Israel, are going, Israel is going to perform the role of priests. And they're going to be. That's going to. That's their purpose, and that the Gentiles will be there, and there'll be Gentiles and there'll be Jews in this kingdom, and there, there's still there's going to be these distinctions. But I think what we have to recognize is that in the church, 
what's occurred in the church is going to occur on a worldwide level in the in the millennial kingdom. So now at this point, it's not as if Jew and Gentile, there's no there's no national distinction. It's not as if there's there there still is national distinction, but they've become one in Christ. And I think that's what's going to happen in the millennial kingdom is that they're going to reign together and and that Israel is going to have their function in the millennial kingdom and the church or Gentiles will have their function in the millennial kingdom and and we're going to reign and rule together I mean in Christ as one and I think what's going to happen is is that that in the millennial kingdom that those distinctions there'll still be those distinctions and that God is going to work through for his purpose and for his glory he's going to work through Israel and that Israel is going to have the role that they have in the in the millennial kingdom, and so in that sense, I don't see Israel as being more important than the church. I don't I don't see them. I see them being you know that there's it's equal if you if you will, you know that you know Paul says in Galatians in Galatians three twenty eight there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I, I would argue that he's talking in respect to salvation, that it's not as if I'm Jewish, it's not as if I'm no longer Jewish. It's not as if I'm Gentile, I'm now, I've now become a Jew. I mean, I, I am, in that sense, I'm, I'm a son of Abraham, right? I'm a, I've become a, I'm an adopted son, but it's, but it's basically, I think that's, in terms of salvation, there is no distinction. Right, if I'm in Christ, there is no distinction in that sense in terms of salvation. It's not as if my salvation is, is lesser than somebody else's or different than somebody else's. There is no distinction, and and so, but at the same time, it's not as if those distinctions and purposes change. And here's my here's my argument. He says male and female. There's no male and female. Well. It's not male doesn't turn to female, female doesn't turn to male, right? I still have that distinction. I'm still a male. I'm still a, if I'm if if I if I were a female, I'd still be a female. When I become a Christian, I don't lose that distinction. So Paul can't be talking about physically, you know, that those distinctions, right? Or even purpose. So as an example, when I become a Christian, it's not as if a female now can take the the role of of males in the church. We we see clear distinct roles in of both. We see clear distinct roles in the family, you know, in terms of the man versus the woman. So I can't I can't be talking economically either. So I can't be talking, you know, in terms of one changing to the other and I certainly can't be talking economically meaning that that practically my roles change because I become a believer. He's talking about salvation. Okay, so now I apply that to what's happening in, you know, in the in, in the millennial kingdom. God will still have his purpose for, even though I think the two become one, God still has his purpose for Israel, and he still has his purpose for the Gentiles. 
And I think that there's a there there are distinctions in that. I don't think that changes, even though in Christ we are one man. If that does that does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think if you when you look at this, there there are just the church in Israel. There are distinctions between them. There, there's different origins, different missions, and different destinies. And we talked about it a little bit. I think it was last one of the last podcasts. Replacement theology. It leads to that, which then leads to a little anti-Semitic beliefs. But if you notice, Paul always does, he breaks it down into three. He talks about Jews, Gentiles, and the church. It's amazing that he still does it. And I think I think what you're saying is in the millennium, is it, that's when things are blended together a little better, but there's still a distinction. There's still Israel has a different role than the church. We are the bride of Christ as the church, but we're not less than Israel. It's almost like the when you look at the a marriage and, you know, the wife is not less than the husband. It's just different roles, right? That's right. That's right. That they that they're equal in Christ, and I think the Jews and the Gentiles will be equal in Christ. They'll be one in that sense, um, and yet I think that there will be distinct roles, um, the same as you know the man and the woman, male and female. Uh, they're they're in in terms of Christ, in terms of their salvation, uh, as you know, Peter says that we are joint heirs. You know that that there's a there's a sameness between us. You know. Paul says there's no distinction, male or female. Uh, so, but but that doesn't mean that now, when I become a Christian, that my role changes. And you know that I think that's the mistake of egalitarianism, where you know now there's this equalness in terms of role. And I don't I don't see that. I see God's purpose being played out, which I which I would argue is a Genesis one purpose that you know when God created male and female. And, you know, in Genesis 2, and he created Adam, and he created Eve to be one corresponding to him. You know, he created Adam for a purpose, and, you know, man, he created the man for the purpose of leading and, and of, of protecting, and he created Eve for the purpose of helping and, and you know, supporting. And, but that doesn't mean that Eve then is lesser than Adam in terms of, you know, how God views her. I think that, that they're both the same in that sense. There is no distinction in that sense. And in terms of salvation, yet there is a distinction in terms of purpose. And at the end of the day, it's all we're all going to be, or we are in, in the church, we all are now one new man in Christ. And so there is no difference in terms of substance, but there is a difference in terms of role or purpose. And again, we see that, I mean, arguing back to Galatians 3.28, we see that in man and woman there you know that there is now it's not as if there's no distinction in the sense of role or purpose because there is i mean it's clear that there's a distinction women can give birth men can't i mean it's that's a, as an example you know there's there's certain ways that women are better than men you know in terms of what they do but then there's certain ways that men are you know better than women in doing certain things and and, and carrying out certain roles Obviously, in the church, God has made it very clear, you know, the, the distinctions that are supposed to be there. But in terms of salvation, there is no distinction. Right. Right. And it's amazing. We talk about it. Male and female, God creates everybody what they're supposed to be. And that's what we're going to be for eternity. That's not going to change. So we are still men and women into the millennium, into the new heavens and the new earth. We're always going to be what we are, but that doesn't make anyone less than anyone else. We're that's right. I mean, we're going to be the essence of who we are. I mean, we're going to be the true essence of who we are. Yeah. I mean, I think the true, 
the true representation, if you will, of, of our personalities will be exist, will exist in heaven. And, and in terms of me being a man, I think I will exist, you know, as a man, because that's the true representation of who I am. Um, and I think a woman would do the same thing in terms of who they are. I think it's, it's who we are as a person comes out truly and, you know, in terms of our character. Right. He is our maker and he made yes. us who we are. Yes. So as we wrap this up, any final words you want to say about pre-mill? Well, I will say the weakness of the pre-millennial view and for us to sit back and think that it is getting worse and we are losing the battle and there's nothing for us to do. You know, culture, culture's lost and, you know, that, that we can't do anything about it. And I, I don't, I don't think we should fall for that. I think that's, if you read it, if you read Second Thessalonians, actually Paul addresses that. Paul says, you know, that, that whole thing about, you know, man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. Well, ultimately that's in response to these people thinking Christ was going to come, his return was going to happen at any time, and they stopped working and were not supporting their families. And, and they were basically being lazy bums and, and acting like that they were doing it because for, for good reasons that Christ is going to return. And the truth of the matter is, is Paul was like, no, you, you need to live your life. You need to, you know, support your family. And, and, you know, I think that, that premillennialism can have that tendency, you know, where we act like that, well, Christ is coming, this world doesn't matter type idea. And I don't think that's true. I do think that, that I do think it's more of a rescue operation than a renovation. But I don't think that, I think that we do need to be people who want to make life better that that you know i think that's i mean that's that's who we are as christians i mean but that should be our heart that should be in our dna if you will that we want to make life better that we want our you know people around us to do well and you know we want we don't we're not looking for we shouldn't be going out in order inordinately looking for suffering I mean, and, and trying to be martyrs. I mean, if the Lord wants to make us a martyr, we need to be a martyr. But if, you know, we need to, if the Lord wants us to suffer, we, then we need to suffer well. But we don't need to go looking for it. And, and I think some, some guys in that position can have that tendency. And, and I think that's a, there's, a, there's a danger there. I think what Jesus said is, is the right thing. Things are going to get worse and worse and worse until he comes. And he's the one that's going to do it. And that's why we look to him and give him all the glory. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I do think he, I mean, I, I know I would argue, I mean, I would say that I, I could see the point that the post mills would say, yeah, I, I mean, he is doing it through us, that it's not us that's doing it. But I think that that's the danger is missing that. And, and I don't, I don't think that at the end of all of this, I, like I said, when everything is all said and done, it's going, we're not going to be able to say we did it. We're not going to be able to say that, I mean, no one's going to be able to say it was because of us. I mean, it's going to be, I mean, he literally is going to get, we say it all the time, he gets all the glory. But I don't think we really think through what that actually means. That means that that we get none of the glory. That the only glory that we get is that which is found in him. You know, that being in him is the only glory that we get. And that's okay, because that's what we want. Amen. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you think we covered everything? I think we... As best we can? I don't know that we did, but we'll, we covered <laughs> enough. Wow. And we'll do a, we'll a wrap-up after...
And thanks for listening to Fresh Bread, where, again, we we're bringing the truth of God's Word to a, to a starving world. You've been listening to Fresh Bread, a podcast of Grace Bible Church, Gainesville. For more information, go to gracegainesville.org. And thanks for listening.